This is Broadcast, Talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. Hello and welcome. I'm Peter White. This week, Talking TV was in the south of France at the MIPCOM market in Cannes to find out about the latest international teletrends. We discover which high-end global dramas were most discussed and which non-scripted formats had the potential to break out of their own markets. We explore how widespread international format theft is after Banerjee and Abbott Hameri came to blows over a pair of game shows. Plus, we speak to Charlie Brooker and his producing partner, Annabelle Jones, about the latest series of Black Mirror. That's all coming up on Talking TV from Broadcast. Joining me at Maple Street Studios, Fremantle Media's Executive Vice President of Global Content and Co-Production, Georgia Brown, and Red Arrow's Vice President of Former Acquisitions and Sales, Harry Gamzu. Morning, guys. So we're fresh off the plane, having drunk all the rosé and eaten all of the beef in the south of France. Uh, How was MIPCOM for the pair of you? It was fantastic. It was a great market. We had a really strong lineup this year, a very broad catalogue to take out to everybody. Uh, Attendance was up. We had some really strong meetings. So positive. Yeah, same. Very, very fun, as you can probably hear from my voice. Um, but yeah, awesome market. Uh, Red Arrow had a brand new stand, which was very impressive. Really good lineup for us. So all in all, a huge success. Yeah, very Great. happy. So we're going to talk about scripted and unscripted at MIPCOM this week, but let's start with non-scripted. There was a lot of talk about formats this week, um, some brand new formats, some format disputes. What do you think the big trend in unscripted was this week, uh, Harry? Well, I think, I think there was a little bit of, well, I'm a bit biased here, but the drama bubble bursting a little bit. Um, I think broadcasters, platforms, content creators looking a little bit more like how can we spread that? Still obviously in the big drama game, but looking at at a number of possibly smaller formats that they can fill that schedule with. Um, I don't think there was any standout trend, to be honest. I think it was a continuation uh, from MIPTV in April. So things like dating, marriage, game shows, social experiments continued to do very well. But I think in general it was the louder formats that stood out and those based around sort of compelling true stories that really made the news and created a buzz this market. Do we think we're out of the world where we've got a new rising star or the voice every market and people are selling a lot more of, of smaller titles? Yeah, I think these days, if you're, if you're hitting kind of seven or eight local format commissions, you're doing pretty well. Um, it's always dis- difficult, you know, to usurp these brands that have really kind of driven down on their little space in their schedule on that primetime slot. There's very few primetime slots available. So until these kind of age or these slots become free, yeah, it's unlikely we'll see that. And you guys had a show called Look Me in the Eye, which uh, which was interesting, but created by a, a British production company, but for a German broadcast. Yeah, created for, um, actually it was in development with Channel 4, um, with CPL. Awesome, awesome promo based on a viral video, actually, from a performance artist called Marina Abramovich. Um, CPL took that basic idea of kind of conflict reconciliation through intense eye contact, which weirdly makes this very awkward to pitch because then you start looking people in the eye and it's just a really awkward mitt. But um, super successful. We pre-launched it last MIP to broadcasters and took it to this market with commissions in France, Belgium uh, and Germany and Australia. Wonderful. And you think it'll go further? You, you're hoping this is just the start of the process? Yeah, very, very much so. Um, you know, with formats, it's all about track records. So the, the German show just locked. Um, it's a big one in the edit. Um, it's going to take a little bit of time to get a full episode, but it should be going up by the end of this year. And I think then we'll kick in and see some of those options uh, converting and further commissions as well. And um, you think we might see it in the UK at some point? Hopefully. I mean, I'd love to see it back at Channel 4. I think it feels like such a nice home for it uh, there. I did talk to them before the market, um, and, they, and they were interested in it. And I think once the Australian season goes on air, it's SBS, so it's the second public broadcaster, and the kind of content there will maybe be more British in tone uh, than, say, the Prozeban version, which is more commercial. 
and uh, the big phrase social experiment that lots of people are using. Uh, Georgia, one of your formats that's got a slightly less uh, um, child-friendly title, Get the Fuck Out of My House. Um, that seems to be in the same world. Uh, can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so it's picked up quite a lot of heat at the market, which we're really pleased about. It's a format that's been in development for a long time with us. And I think it's taken a while for someone to crack how you can do it. Um, but I think they've done a fantastic job. It's just going out at the moment. It's getting absolutely extraordinary ratings, both in terms of social buzz and the overnights. It's launching in Holland, is that right? Launching in Holland. Um, but I think this is one that's going to travel really well for us. We're very excited by it. It is a social experiment, but it's very different to Big Brother. It's very experimental. It really looks at kind of human behaviour when you go in a house like that, you know, 100 people having to survive for 40 days uh, and we keep talking about the human zoo and what's really interesting when we did the pilot is you really see the human zoo come out so you see you know the chameleon which is the person who switches their face between each conversation you've got you know the rat which is the kind of slightly sneaky one trying to get what they want um, and it, it's amazing how desperate people become when they're in that situation some people walked out straight away um, others have lasted uh, I certainly wouldn't want to be in that house that's for sure is it is it a weekly show no, it's stripped across the week. I think it's a very um, adaptable format, so I'm quite excited to see what happens internationally. How did the title go down? You know, it's gone down really well, and we were quite nervous, but I think people expect shows coming out of Holland to be a bit more risky, maybe. Um, and I think, you know, all credit to the marketing and branding around the show, I think it's absolutely stunning. They've kind of taken that Fargo-esque cross-stitch style, which kind of slightly softens it. So I think it's it's gone down really well. And it seems that some of the uh, the classic genres are coming back. Uh, Netflix was saying they were looking for retro shows. And, and Harry, I know you were mentioning that dating formats are, are still on the, on the agenda. What's, uh, what's your experience of that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, Married at First Sight really created a huge buzz. Well, it must have been two or three years ago now. And we've now got that in 26 uh, territories in total. We've got a new spin-off as well in, in the US uh, that Connecticut are producing called Second Chances, where you can apply to date the person that you should have married in the show, still using the same experts and very much formatted as well. Um, and I think that kind of started off a trend for very credible shows. What's interesting is that we've seen dating kind of move into a new space, which is often kind of stripped a bit more early in the schedule and maybe a bit more trashy, some might say, but a, a lot of fun. And, and this market, we also took a, a kind of event dating series called Match Factor, uh, which premiered on Prozeba in three episodes. Essentially, it's like uh, my dating life. It's uh, live Tinder to begin with, followed by Facebook stalking, and then you end up sometimes in bed. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's been very fun. And, and we took that to the market as a big kind of event dating piece. I wondered where we were going to get it, the Tinderification of, uh, of dating formats. Yeah, very much so. And um, I mentioned Netflix there, and, and, and George, I know that you were spending some time with the streaming platforms in, in Cam with the likes of Amazon and such. Have they sort of replaced um, some of the, the money that they really do seem interested in non-scripted for the first time in, in quite, a, quite a while? Absolutely. I think, you know, Netflix have made an interesting play in the uh, in the factual space. And I think Captive coming up from Lightbox, who we do a lot with, and we launched the market War Child with them, I think is going to be a really interesting move in that direction. I think what's interesting with the factual that they have been going for on the original space is it's, um, it's very high end. It's going to grab a lot of eyeballs. But, you know, we know they're also looking at other shows um, because, again, they need to service a big audience. There's lots of people out there that want, want factual and it's an underserved audience to them right now. There would seem to be not less of the American broadcasters coming to, to MIP and MIPCOM these days. Do we think Netflix and Amazon are perhaps filling that gap? 
I don't think they're filling the gap. I mean, we had a lot of fantastic meetings. Lots of the big US guys were over this week talking to us. Um, I think Netflix to us and Amazon to us are just another platform to speak to. And they're certainly, you know, they're aggressive. They pay good prices. But, you know, we're having wonderful conversations with all of the cable guys and the networks as well. And there was a lot of talk about formats dispute. I know Banerjee and, and Abbott Hameri um, started off the week uh, both saying that they'd created the same type of format. Um, how is that something that, that your clients or the people that you were meeting were, were worried about? Or is this just something? Something that's uh, you know becoming a, a matter in the press. Yeah, I mean, I think it's always a difficulty kind of protecting your formats. I mean, we work very hard to look after all our key brands, but um, you know, it's like all of these things. I think we see these 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 trends, and there's only so many new fresh ideas in in dating, for example. And you know, there's a similar format to Look Me in the Eye that we took out. I mean, luckily we've got kind of four big commissions on our side, so I think it's all about building track record as quickly as possible. Um, I'm working hard, yeah, to develop that brand into kind of an unmissable brand. Um, we found with Married at First Sight in the past that you actually are much better off taking the original and the best um, rather than going for the rip-off version. Is that your experience, Georgia? Absolutely. And it's something at Fremantle we talk a lot about just because obviously we have a lot of content that's traveling. Um, and, you know, there are always going to be iterations of formats out there. But I agree with, with Harry. It's about taking the original and the strongest idea. And usually those are the ideas that will continue and will work. Lovely. And um, you, you briefly touched there on factual in the, in the traditional sense of documentaries. And, and you have this, uh, this show you mentioned, War Child, which was just commissioned by, by Channel 4. Um, what's the, the space at, at MIPCOM and internationally for, for factual programming? I think the appetite's growing. Um, and I think as people who've aggressively moved into the drama space realise that it is quite a risky territory to be in and it doesn't always have the upside that they thought it would, Factual's going to come round and I suspect this is going to be a big year for Factual going into 17. Certainly for us, we have a very broad catalogue. Factual's always been something we've focused on. Um, but we're really interested in moving into a more heavy-hitting space and Warchild's probably the first of that. Um, working with Lightbox, obviously Academy Award winning, Simon Chin and Jonathan Chin uh, and Jamie Roberts. And, and for free Mantle, it's really about having a kind of creative space that some of these big producers can call home um, and be in, in good company in. And that show follows four child refugees escaping the, the Middle East. Um, is that something that will sell around the world? I mean, it's a one-off. Is, it, it feels that um, that doesn't seem that that too much for, for global broadcasters. Actually, we've had some really strong interest. I think it will definitely go out to the US. I think it will go out to a lot of the European territories. Again, there's lots of content in this space and we've watched a lot of documentaries go out, some of which have been fantastic. But I think the credentials behind this one and the way that it's been done in such a genuine way um, will, will make this one travel. It's very, it's very hard hitting and it's a real human interest story. More MIPCOM in just a moment. But first, Robin Parker tracked down Charlie Brooker and Annabelle Jones to talk about Netflix's Black Mirror. He discussed how the show changed for the on-demand platform, bringing on board a number of new directors, and also how he'd like to revisit a touch-of-cloth-style comedy, potentially as part of the next series of Black Mirror. A word of warning, just like the show, this interview may not be suitable for children. Here's Charlie on the audience's reaction to preview screenings of Black Mirror. No one's been sick or physically violent. Yeah, or carried out. Which I think is good. Yeah, hmm. we did Toronto Film Festival a few weeks ago. Not many people walked out. <laughs> uh, no one walked no out. No one walked out. Um, one person did walk out. There was a like, oh, weird yes. drunk guy came in. I was glad he walked out. And given you've, you've had these into batches of three before and you've, you've got a commission quite early up from Netflix for, for 12 across two series... Have you got a, you know, a huge bumper book of ideas that you're kind of cherry-picking from? Are there 12 sort of from your development, or have you 
gone to others to sort of come up with some of the ideas and then work on it on them with them we've worked with some co-writers but generally we or i tend to originate the the original ideas and then we sort of often through annabelle and i and and others on the team discussing usually not sort of discussing news stories or something like that but just generally discussing kind of what if ideas and usually then if we stumble across something that makes me really laugh and makes everyone else upset <laughs> then we know we're in good Black Mirror territory. We've done sort of half the scripts for the for the next season already, um, he said confidently. Yeah, I think we're just very lucky that you're so neurotic and worried. Mm. So there's... Your well, listen, your... the sirens. As soon as you said that, there's something terrible happening somewhere. I thought it was in your brain, yeah. Mm. Anyway, so Charlie's very prolific and um, we're always looking for other ideas, aren't we? You know, but... Um, Sometimes it's just quicker just to plug into him, and <laughs> that's wrong. <laughs> Thanks for um, it like sorry. That. Yeah, it's interesting in that it's quite an idiosyncratic show in many ways. It's it's interesting that that I think our take on what represents a good Black Mirror story is sometimes slightly different from when people try to submit us ideas or something. It's 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 quite a difficult thing to slot into, and obviously also we've got an an, an overview of where we're not we're trying not to repeat themes that we've done in another story or where there's any other kind of thematic overlap in this season because we're doing six and not three we wanted more variety of both the tone and almost the genre of story we're doing so we've got some episodes that are sort of like jet black thriller and there's other ones which are kind of more slightly more hopeful occasionally we've allowed a little bit of hope in occasionally and then we've got ones that are more playful and we've got like a detective story so I guess also we tend to originate them in-house because we've got a good view overview of it's kind of like sequencing an album putting an album together and we know what the other songs are god I sound like but an more idiot, wanky so. than that yeah I know it's it, much more wanky could, than could that be, could it be any more wanky than what I just said could anything be more no. wanky than that but I think Charlie's a good point when we came to do this season was that he just didn't want the show to feel predictable. It didn't want to be the show that opened that was very bleak and you knew it was going to be some harrowing ending because that would feel slightly repetitive. Not all the time, anyway. Yeah, Only 98% of the time. Yeah. Now you are making it for Netflix. These are standalone stories. That's not necessarily the Netflix model of viewing or release. Do you think people would sit down and watch six episodes of wildly different t- tonal <laughs> bleakness? I don't know. I mean, because it's interesting because some people say, oh, I can't binge watch that. It's quite a... Hopefully it feels, each one feels like quite a full meal because it does come to a halt, which, you know, most most shows which are designed for binge watching end by tantalising you slightly, don't they? They sort of slightly hold something back so you have to watch the next one. Um, and obviously we don't do that. So whether... I don't know. It's really... It's, it, we didn't really think about the... That didn't enter in the in the story writing process, really. But I think what is tantalising about Black Mirror is the, that virtue that you never know what you're going to get. So you may watch one and be really intrigued as to what the next one is going to be because they're all so different. I suppose it's also helpful if people really hate an episode. They can think, well, it can't get any worse than that. I'll watch the next one because... They can't all be this shit. Yeah, Exactly. <laughs> And going back to the early discussions with Netflix, what were the discussions like? What was it they said to you that they saw in what you'd done with Black Mirror already and what they wanted as a as a show? Well, I mean, they already had... The, because they hosted the first and second seasons in the States, so they had already seen that people were watching it and talking about it. And really, they they kind of said, just carry on doing that. 
pretty much was what they said. They didn't. There wasn't any pressure from them to say they didn't say to say make it all American or or, or anything like that. Some of the stories we have made American. Partly, <laughs> the first one I wrote was San Junipero, and it was partly I'd read somewhere saying, "Oh, it's gone to Netflix. It's going to get completely Americanized." And on some level. I thought, right, f- this will be fucking funny. All right, one set in California. Fuck you. But really, they're never prescriptive about anything. It's sort of very... They have lots of thoughts and ideas, but they're very well thought out, annoyingly well thought out ones. And they're never prescriptive. Because we obviously had already done quite a few episodes. They liked the show, so why would they want anything to change? But also ne- Netflix's ethos is about supporting talent and not you know, trying to restrict or curtail or even you know alter it's very much the auteur's vision that they're interested in i don't really feel like an auteur i don't really know what an auteur is it sounds like an like a i think it's a show off someone right. who sort oh, of writes comes up with the idea head. of rights and then sort of like <laughs> produces it as well right we were i mean we were aware obviously that this was now going to be going out globally and all at the same time that's quite which is quite weird you can't help but think, okay, well, let's expand the scope of the show slightly. And it is a little more ambitious, generally. And because it's on Netflix, we've got flexible running times. So we've got a feature-length episode, for instance, because you can do that. But, I mean, I've been I've been pretty lucky anyway, generally, throughout my broadcast career, because I've never really had a broadcaster step in and go, you can't do that, and, oh, don't do that, or rewrite that bit, and don't do that. I think that's happened, like, once. Hmm. So, in a way, it's kind of business as usual. Do you feel you have to rein yourself in or have another check because there aren't the scheduling restrictions, there aren't kind of the broadcaster restrictions, which even if you don't have detailed notes, you know as an experienced programme maker what broadcasters want, whereas Netflix are happy to leave it up to you. Well, it's an interesting point. I mean, often when I'm writing, what I used to do, if I knew something was going on a commercial channel, and if I was finding it difficult, I just think, well, I only have to make it up to the next ad break. Like I'd write it bearing in mind where the ad breaks were and I'd write in end of part one, part two, and and so on. And it was just a good psychological tool as you're getting through the process of doing it. And you don't have that, obviously. That's something I did think afterwards, well, maybe I should just carry on doing that anyway, you know, as we go into the next season. I might just keep doing that. It's just a useful psychological trick. Other than that, I don't know. Not really. I've been through the process before of where you write something and then there's the meeting where reality kicks in and people are going, well, we can't afford the the army of bagpipers who come over the the mountains. We can get a bloke with a kazoo <laughs> walking over a hill. And so I tend to try to write with an eye to the reality of production and as much as possible having said that bearing in mind the script we just turned in <laughs> try to sort of bear that in mind at the start so you try and and, and limitations are actually often quite useful mm. so we did we did an episode we did the entire history of your episode which was one we did in the original series which was one where people are replaying memories all the time and in the original script all those memories are being replayed on tv screens and we had a meeting where it was like well that's going to cost a fortune we're going to have to comp everything in it's just going to take it's the logistical nightmare and so I was like, well, if they're recording these things with their eyes, why don't we just have them play it back in their eyes? And weirdly, that so that was a financial solution, but actually that meant it made it a much more powerful story because then these people are reliving these memories in a much more intimate way. 
and it became more horrifying as a result. So sometimes restrictions are useful. I've wandered so far off the original question, I fear I'm orienteering now. I'm going to bring it back. Okay. Um, but Netflix, obviously, are full of lots of clever, creative people, and I don't think they would ever allow us to be that indulgent. So, you know, their notes are never prescriptive, but they're always very helpful and well thought through so we have you have those normal checks like you would with any other network you've worked with a range of different directors on this as well can you talk a bit about, about how you marry them up to the, to the material and how you how you sort them out and what they they each brought to it you know as charlie was saying this season is very different in terms of um genre and some tonal differences across the six so you always obviously try and match the script to the best director or the director you think is going to respond as passionately and enthusiastically as possible to that material. You know, we go and approach people based on what the episode, what the film is trying to do. And we've been so lucky this season with just amazing directors across all six. So from Dan Trachenberg, who just did 10 Cloverfield Lane, um, he's come to do our horror romp. Joe Wright, who is doing our sort of more social satire one, sort of slightly lighter piece, beautifully, beautifully realised with Bryce Dallas Howard. Jakob Verbruggen, who did The Fall and London Spies, has come to do our sort of slightly grittier militaristic story mm-hmm. god i could go on james hawes you know um from the mill uh, has done our sort of detective one um scandy noir, scandy like noir a, yeah black mirror scandy noir and we had owen harris who's done a previous episode for us with Haley atwell and donald gleason called be right back he's come back to do a beautiful beautiful tender love story called san junipero mm-hmm. james watkins who james... did the woman in black and uh, eden lake has done uh, Shut Up and Dance, which is horrible mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> in in all the right ways. We're a beautiful, be- yeah, mm. no, sorry, I say beautiful, but I mean... It's beautifully really horrible. Beautifully horrible, and starring Alex Lawther and Jerome Flynn. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we've we've been blessed with great actors and directors across the board. I mean, I think it's it's a fairly attractive gig, hopefully, for a director, because obviously if they're coming into most 99% of television, the director, unless they're directing the pilot, doesn't really get to... There's not much you can do in a way. You can you can't recast it. You can't alter the setting. You can't really alter the shooting style most of the time on most episodic shows. Whereas with this, obviously, the show is completely reinvented every time. And so when the director gets on board, then the script changes again because we'll have lots of meetings. And so I'll rewrite things and change things. And and they always they'll come in with lots of new ideas. I mean, Nosedive is a good example. That's the the episode that. Um, Joe Wright has done from this uh, season where it's got a look that was not envisaged in the script at all but it's got this like very very distinct kind of pastel cheerful nightmare look that again lifts it all up to an extra sort of level you know really our wanky way of looking at it was that we were like curating a little film festival and it does kind of feel like that and then also for feature directors who do live in that world they're not you know they can come to Blackmore and do a film and without having been stuck in years of development hell and a much shorter gig for them you know three or four weeks of filming and a few months of post so it works for most people it does strike me, you know, a lot of there's a lot of talk about, you know, golden age of TV and there's a lot of TV drama out there and actors in particular moving out of Hollywood movies into television. Anthology shows like this are a nice happy medium in a sense. You know, you have this, you have Inside Number Nine, you've got Electric Dreams coming up. These things where you can get the great actors because of the short production cycle. Yeah, no, absolutely. And But I suppose, you know, actors and directors will only ever respond to the material. Um, so it's got to be that compelling idea or something that really relates to them. Mm-hmm. When Black Mirror was first going out, we got there were like US networks who were expressing an interest in it, but they all said to us, "We don't do anthology shows. It's just 
anthology shows just aren't a thing anymore. They just don't just don't work. And now they do. So <laughs> Well, not that they don't work, they just don't rate. Yeah, I suppose you know, it's difficult. It's just harder for them to keep the audience coming back when there's no continuing mm. narrative or character. But that's and that's another thing that's like out the window. Once you're on a streaming service, you're not it was always a thing that's difficult with a show like this is yeah, keeping people coming back week on week. You, when you do, you, we don't have cliffhangers and we don't have returning cast, so it's quite difficult. And the only other way to do it really is to remind viewers that it's there and drum up interest by running lots of trails. But then you're kind of blowing the story because we always have this tension about well, what can we, what can we reveal in our trails that doesn't just give, give the game away, mm. and it's very difficult. Now you've got streaming platforms; they are kind of like the ideal. The ideal home for anthology shows, it feels like, because it's more like, it is like a little film festival or an album or a book of short stories. It's kind of there in one place and you can kind of eat it at your leisure. But of course, Netflix obviously do lots of documentaries and lots of films anyway, so it's not just long-running TV dramas. So we're not unique in that sense, you know, if we we view our anthology as just six films. Looking at what House of Tomorrow does and what else it can do, Clearly, this is you know a huge bit of business. This is a great thing, and and I'd imagine it's opened up all sorts of talks with Netflix and others. Are there ambitions for particular genres, types of shows, other talent you want to work with? What other, what else do you see House of Tomorrow doing in the the coming months and years? Imploding, <laughs> imploding under the strain of making six films a year. Um, this is a great opportunity Netflix have given us and you know to be able to have six films in one year on one season is a huge huge privilege so I think at the moment we're very happy just doing that and mm. and Charlie obviously has his end of year show coming up mm-hmm. yeah I've got to do I'm doing 2016 wipe so I'm going to be shortly sitting in an edit suite staring at everything horrible that's happened this year unfortunately we've accidentally had 25 years of news this year <laughs> so that's going to be fun I'd like to re- revisit doing, you know, touch a cloth style because I'd like to do a really broad comedy <laughs> again, just as a. But then I bet there's a way of doing one of those under the Black Mirror umbrella as well. So, um, yeah, there's things, there's things we could do. That's that's the cagiest. That's the sort of cagiest, most n- biggest non-answer. Uh, I don't know. That's the answer. I don't know. You should have put hopefully on the end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that would be the worst company <laughs> slogan ever. There are things we can do, dot dot dot. Hopefully. <laughs> Black Mirror is now available exclusively on Netflix around the world. Back with me in the studio are Georgia Brown and Harry Gamzu. And let's continue our MIPCOM chat, this time with drama. So have we hit peak drama? Georgia, you were launching a number of uh, scripted shows down at the market. No, I mean, um, for Fremantle, as you know, uh, we've made a real strive in drama over the last three years, very deliberately. So I don't think we've hit peak. I think the sorts of drama that are coming to the market are going to start to vary. You'll see from our catalogue coming through, it's a mix of very high ends. We've got Young Pope, American Gods, Apple Tree Yard. It's about top talent, um, top quality content. And then there's also another wave of shows, which are the kind of higher volume slightly less expensive, like Suspects, which we've seen is travelling now to people like RTL in Germany, um, and The Heart Guy, which is Doctor Doctor in Channel 9. 
So let's talk about some of those. You mentioned the young Pope. Um, there was a huge uh, billboard on the side of the Palais for it. Um, does a show like this need to, to launch at, at Cannes? Obviously, you've, you've got your deals with Sky and HBO and Canal+. Plus. What, is, uh, what do you see Cannes for a show like this? Well, we launched the show officially at the Venice Film Festival a few weeks ago, which was absolutely extraordinary, I have to say. And, you know, with talent like Paolo on board, it deserves that level of launch. Um, For us, taking it to Cannes was really a chance for all of our other broadcasters to have sight of it. Um, It's a very high-profile piece. It's a very prestigious piece. And I think the way we marketed it at Cannes is a demonstration of what that could do for our broadcasters who are picking that show up. Is that similar for for American Gods, which is on stars in the States and and, uh, similarly uh, has been sold around the world? Absolutely. We're just planning the launch plans for that now. Obviously, stars will heavily uh, dictate what we're doing there, and I have no doubt they're going to have a spectacular launch around that next year. Um, but it will definitely be big presence for us at MIP TV. Lovely. I think we have a short clip of that. So what would I call you if I was so inclined? Shadow Moon. What might I call you? What's today? Wednesday. Today's my day. I could use a fellow like you. So we've just heard American Gods there. Can you tell us a little bit about that, Georgia? So American Gods is based on the book of the same name by Neil Gaiman, which has an incredible cult following around the world, as you know. Uh, what's quite spectacular about working on a show like this is, first of all, the talent involved, Brian Fuller, Michael Green. Then we have people like Ian McShane, who is absolutely mesmerising on screen. We're breaking some relatively new talent to the international market and people like Ricky Whittle um, and then supporting cast uh, with people like Emily Browning. So it's it's a true ensemble. Uh, the creative is like nothing you've ever seen before. Uh, the storytelling is just exquisite. It's some of the best writing I think I've ever seen. It's going to launch on Stars next year and we're really excited. And uh, a bit, little bit closer to home, you mentioned Apple Tree Yard. Apple Tree Yard is a fantastic acquisition for us. Um, it's working with Kudos, who I uh, absolutely love. I have a lot of respect for them. They're one of the best. Um, and it's pulled on board Jess Hobbs, who directed River, who's a spectacular director. And it's based on the best-selling book uh, of the same name. We were really delighted to pick this show up last year and be working with Kudos on it. It has caused a lot of attention at the market. What I think Fremantle's done very well is we really are just about having the best creatives, whether that's a one-off, a four-parter, ten parts. It doesn't really matter to us. We just want to take the best show out there. And Apple Tree Yard as a mini falls into that space. So we're delighted to be working with it. Um, and I think it's going to do exceptionally well. So Harry, uh, what else uh, on the drama side for you? What was the this week uh, on the scripted talk? We're suddenly bringing a lot of news on Bosch being renewed for season four uh, by Amazon, which is fantastic. Uh, we also had Last Cop, which is our scripted format in Japan, renewed for season two. And we have a movie coming next year as well. Pragao, which is the Austrian crime thriller, they did incredibly well on ORF in Austria. I think a third of the population watched the show this month. Um, it was a very exciting launch for us. Uh, this MIP. And then Matahari as well uh, was an acquisition that we brought to uh, MIPCOM and had a premiere down there as well. Um, it's a period drama. It's from uh, Star Media for Channel One Russia. Um, it's very much Russia's kind of first foray into international scripted production. Um, so we're really there to kind of be them through that and, and help them um, in that process and we've got very solid interest in that project as well. And it's a period drama about the uh, the spy and the, uh, the dancer. So um, I think we've got a little bit of a clip here. Margaret Zell might be permanently deprived of seeing her daughter. She told me you come here and escape your husband. My ex-wife has sued against me to get her daughter back. She's a dancer and a courtesan. This woman is a disgrace, not fit to raise a child. Jean-Louise will remain with her father. No, 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 no! Mommy! 
And that's got quite an international cast, hasn't it's it? It's got a cracking cast. Gerard Jeppardu and John Corbett, both from Sex and the City, which is great. Wonderful. Um, and do we think this is going to be, you know, Russia becoming the new Scandinavia? Uh, Georgia, you sell uh, non-English language drama. What do, what do you think of that? Well, what's been great about this market and hearing from Red Arrow as well is there's a real celebration now for non-English language drama. It's something that's travelling well, I think, for all of the distributors. I think the barriers have come down and it really is a global market now. So we're exporting um, extensively shows like Acquitted from Miso, Dicta, Modus is coming up next year. Uh, and I think, you know, a lot of the other distributors are having an equal amount of success. So it's fantastic. Taking on the big American dramas. Talking of American dramas, uh, Shonda Rhimes was one of the big names in Cannes. Uh, the creator of Scandal and Grey's Anatomy um, was the MIPCOM personality of the year, and she gave a couple of uh, a couple of different keynote sessions. Um, she told Broadcast that after a good experience working with British actors and producers, that she'd be eager to create a show for the UK, um, and particularly wanted to tap into the possibility of Disney's increasingly international production presence. Um, so interesting, we might see a, a Shonda Rhimes show on on the BBC in uh, in the near future. So just to wrap up, uh, what was your favourite show that you spotted that had nothing to do with you? Uh, Georgia, what was what was on your list? National Treasure has to be number one on my list. I thought it was the most sumptuous bit of storytelling. I was utterly gripped and I think it's going to sell fantastically around the world. So I'm very jealous. I'd like that show in my catalogue. Great. Harry? Yeah, the one that a few people were talking about was actually down in the bunker with Fuji, Japanese. I think it, I can't really remember, what it, but celebrities walking down the street and falling in holes or being pulled out of restaurants into rivers. And weirdly, there was a few broadcasters um, actually considering that one. And then I think the other one, DRG's uh, Animal Attraction, which is Love at First Smell. Um, it's just a really fun one as well. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, on that note, that's your lot for Talking TV. Thanks a lot to Georgia Brown, Harry Gamzu, Robin Parker, Charlie Brooker and Annabelle Jones. I'm Peter White and the producer was Matt Hill at Rethink Audio. See you on the other side. You've been listening to Broadcast, Talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. 